Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to the second part of the Moving to Live interview with Dean Somerset. Two weeks ago, we got to hear how he came from a small town in Western Canada, talked about some of his certifications, why he chose those certifications. He talked about how he progressed from working up to 90 hours a week or more to still working quite a few hours, but having a little more freedom and the opportunity to present nationally and internationally. I think it's an interesting story. I think it's valuable for anybody who is in the movement field to realize just because what you're doing now doesn't mean that's what you're doing years from now. And it's possible to progress. I also think Dean's going to have some great information for us that we can maybe recommend to people who aren't in the movement profession. So Dean, again, thanks for taking time to talk with us and we'll get into part two, if you don't mind. My absolute pleasure, man. I'm very glad to be here. So one of the things that you mentioned that really resonated me with the uh, first part of the interview is you mentioned that you've been doing a lot of traveling. You did something maybe you shouldn't have done when working with a client or working with a, a relative and you hurt your back. And immediately you started into some sort of a rehab program. And I think one of the things that I've seen as I've progressed is as a professional is I see the profession, whether you call it exercise science, movement science, rehab, is really divided into two categories. There's the people who are really emphasizing movement. And if somebody is injured or comes to them with an injury, they want to make them move and they want to improve their ability to move without causing pain. And there's the other group that says, uh, you don't want to move or you're getting older, you can't do this. Fortunately, that's the smaller group, but I'm saying it still exists. How did you arrive at the concept or the the attitude as a personal trainer that movement is important, I'm going to specialize with these individuals, and I'm going to convince them that they moving and doing exercise can improve their quality of life, whereas I imagine some of these individuals who have fairly significant medical problems from what you described in the first uh, 
half of this podcast have been made afraid to move and afraid to be active by previous professionals. Well, the the thing is that there's always going to be a way that you can do something involving movement one way or another. It doesn't have to be like a max squat or anything like that, but going for a walk is a way of getting really good benefit from just everything like your cardiovascular system, your muscles, your bones, your joints, all that kind of stuff. Um, regardless of what injury you have, whether it's like tendonitis or a complete rupture of your ACL or whatever, applying force into that tissue in a measured and uh, below th- threshold level threshold being for injury is going to help it to adapt and is going to help it to get better and stronger. So it's one of those things where there's such overwhelming volume of evidence to say that, yeah, you you can move, but you have to understand how to, so that you don't wind up hurting something even further. So when I gave the example of something like uh, tendonitis, if it's an inflamed area that needs time to rest and heal, what can you do actively so that your entire body doesn't detrain while also not putting too much force through that tissue so that it can heal properly? If you have something like an ACL reconstruction, um, how are you going to put force into that tissue so that the bone graft heals up faster using Wolf's Law? Or how are you going to make it so that the muscles around the joint can maintain some level of strength and not detrain so that you can get back on the field faster? So there's a lot of ways that we can get the body to do stuff, but sitting and being sedentary isn't really one of them. Do you find that some of the people that you get as clients or patients, uh, you have to explain this to them because previous people have made them afraid to move or said you need to be very careful? In my experience, it's actually been kind of the opposite. So a lot of people come into it with less information or less guidelines. And a lot of the time, the doctor or the physio will say, yeah, just go back to what you were doing. Meanwhile, what they were doing was maybe running 50 kilometers or 50 miles in a week and wondering why they have overuse injuries. So going back to that, they they can eventually get back there, but they might just need a little bit of a workup on what their volume is going into it. So that way they don't wind up exploding the tissue that's already been overtrained. Um, exploding is just, you know, a hyperbole on that one. That's not actually going to explode, but it makes people think stuff. But, um, when people are going back into activities, yeah, they might need to have a graduated return to activity program, or they might need to say, well, instead of doing this exercise, do this one instead. It's not going to have the risk to the tissue that you're worried about, but it's going to allow you to still train and it's going to allow you to still get the benefit you're after, but just in a different way. So maybe instead of uh, deadlifting from the floor in a conventional stance with a disc herniation, maybe we do a trap bar from an elevated surface. So you're still getting a benefit from it, but you're just doing it in a different way to reduce some of the risk associated with the exercise. And you find that when you present at conferences, you have some people who come up to you. I know this is probably a hot button for some professionals. You just said that deadlifting is good. Even though you didn't say deadlifting is good, you said in the appropriate situation with the right adaptation. Do you ever have somebody come up to you and say, deadlifting is bad, or I disagree with you that everybody should squat? Well, the biggest thing I'll say is, you know, why do you say that? And if they give me advice of, oh, well, if you squat, then your ACLs are going to get damaged. Well, there's a lot of evidence to show that your ACLs don't actually get damaged when you do a squat. It's actually on slack when you get to the bottom of a squat position and tense when you get to the top. So squatting is probably more beneficial for your ACLs than not squatting. Um, For deadlifting, is it because the spine is under more shear force? Okay, well, don't you think the spine should be able to buffer against shear forces in the future, maybe with lower loads than maximum, but to be able to train the body to resist against the forces that might cause injury? And if they say, well, no, the spine should never be involved in shear force, well, how do you get out of bed? How do you stand up off a toilet? How do you bend over to tie your shoes? Shear force is going to happen on your spine. 
So you might as well learn how to buffer and learn what to do or what bracing strategies are going to help you to do the thing that you want to do with the lowest ch- chance of something bad happening. And what have you found the response has been or the range of responses from some of these people? Well, it, it could be anywhere from like downright anger to acceptance and agreeance. And I just say, you know, I, I don't care what exercise you want to do. Just justify why you want to do it. If you have an exercise that you absolutely hate and you can justify cool, then don't use that. Do something different. But just understand what the benefits of that exercise are and do they actually apply to your client? Like I've had some clients where we've tried every perceivable permutation of a deadlift and it just never works for them. So, okay, well, we just don't do a deadlift. We'll do a squat or we'll do a lunge or we'll do a plank or we'll do something else. But something about a deadlift motion or deadlift pattern, it just doesn't agree with them. Either it hurts or they just can't line up for it. All right, cool. I'm not going to try to beat your head against a wall that's just not happening. So let's do something different. I think it's interesting to hear you say that. You hear something similar to that to a lot of professionals who have been in the field a while. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Sam Callen, who is the director of coaching education at USA Fencing, who also coaches some endurance athletes. And he said that he had a client who would never do one of the workouts, which involved two by 20 minutes at a specific intensity. And he would write this program and this athlete would follow the program to a T except for this one workout. And finally, he asked her, he said, well, why don't you do this workout because you do everything else? And she said, I just get to like eight or nine minutes and I just stop concentrating and stop thinking and I just can't do it and dread the rest of it. He said, well, so what I did is I switched to four by 10 minutes. Essentially, it was the same for what I wanted to accomplish and the athlete was able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you hold the exercise as being some sort of sacred cow that just cannot be changed, then you're going to be stuck with the results you get. If the person just can't do it, why not change the exercise? We've got the ability to do that kind of stuff, so do it. I think the other thing that is really valuable for anybody listening to what you said is be able to justify what you do. Um, mm-hmm. I've used this before in a previous podcast at the most recent NSCA conference. They had Michael Phelps coach talk, and mm-hmm. one of the things that he said was, I want my athletes to ask me why we're doing what we do, and I'm more than happy to explain it to them if there's time. I may say in the short short term just because I'm a coach, but in the long term, I'll explain to them this is why we're doing this, and this is the reason behind it. Because if people understand why they're doing something and the rationale behind it, then they're more likely to be compliant and buy into it and be consistent in what they do. Yeah, absolutely. If the client knows why they're doing something, they're going to be more willing to do it, especially if they see a payoff at the end of the day. So we talked in the first uh, part of this podcast about how you went from being a new personal trainer working 90 plus hours a week to somebody who still worked quite a few hours on the floor, but also did some writing because you learned you were good about writing and also travel and do some presentations. And I know from looking at your website, you have a number of presentations that you do, a number that are available um, in video. How do you decide which presentations you're going to develop for presenting to people uh, outside of the gym setting that you work at? Well, part of it comes down to what is the audience looking for? So I had a few people when I My first product that I put out was Post Rehab Essentials because I was already teaching that course as continuing it to my trainers in my club anyway. So I thought, well, I'll just film it and see if I can package it. And it seemed to go over really well. And then from there, I was just able to start saying, well, what are people looking for? What are people asking for from me? Where do I get most people trying to get the information? So I came out with things like advanced core training, ruthless mobility, um, a couple other products down the line. 
A uh, recent one that I've got coming up that I'm going to be filming is on assessment practices. So I'm not talking about just like, you know, follow these three steps and you're all done. It's why are you doing this? What are you doing? And when can you adjust this between the different people that you're going to be working with? So trying to develop more of a thought process to why you're doing your assessment versus here's the set assessment that you do step one, two, three. So that's going to be a future product just because I found that a lot of people are saying, well, how do I assess? How do I actually develop a program from this? So everyone was saying the same thing. So I'm going to give them what they're looking for. And then when you go to present at places anywhere from St. Louis to New York City, do you have canned presentations? How does that work? Does somebody contact you and say, hey, we'd like you to come talk and we'd like you to talk on this? Or do they contact you and say, hey, we'd like you to come talk, talk on whatever you want because we've read your your blog and we've, we've listened to your podcast and we think anything that you do is great for us? Well, usually uh, it could be one or the other. So I'll give people a rundown of the different things that I have presentations ready to go for. Um, and then it's just a matter of if they say, yeah, those are good, we'll go with this one. Or it might be, well, no, can you talk about this instead? So then I'll just develop a new pr presentation out of it. And I might use some information that I've used in previous podcasts or uh, presentations or something like that. But usually just devoted around the new content that they're looking for. Switching gears a little bit, as I mentioned in the first interview or, or the first part of our interview, I first became aware or convinced that I needed to do a podcast by listening to an interview of you with Stuart McGill. And you've mm -hmm. had a number of uh, guests on there who are, quite frankly, big names that speak not only to personal trainers and strength coaches, but also to physical therapists and doctors. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear from listening to that podcast from, I guess, over a year ago now, <laughs> that uh, Dr. McGill had a great deal of respect for you. Could you describe how you get some of these guests on and you know why they're willing to come talk to you? And that's not to downplay it. It's just I find it very interesting because you don't think of some of these names, as, as I mentioned before we started recording, speaking to personal trainers. Yeah, and usually it just comes down to I either have a contact with them beforehand and I just reach out and say, Hey, do you want to do this? Or I heard you doing something like this. Do you want to come onto my podcast and talk about it? Um, most of the time it's just two people just shooting the breeze, talking about technique stuff or whatever we like to talk about. I try not to make it something where it's too formal. I mean, just like what you are doing with this one. Uh, most people are usually willing to talk about stuff, especially if they understand that it's going to be an engaging conversation. And if it's something that they live, breathe, eat and sleep, they're more than happy to have that conversation because it's something they're really passionate about. And if they can reach an audience that they weren't reaching before, cool. Now they've expanded their voice. And I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, anybody who's listening to this podcast, Dean's is a good one to listen to and, you know, look, look at the show notes. And I think I've said this before, not on this podcast, but if you are in the movement field of any sort, anywhere from physical therapy to just a student, the two courses that you should try to attend is anything that Dr. Stuart McGill gives, who I'll let Dean describe who he is. And the other one that I would say to seek out, I know she's getting on in years, but she is phenomenal, is Dr. Shirley Sarman. If you're in the movement field and you go and you listen to one of those two people, you're going to come away going, wow, I don't know anything. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely leaders in their field. I mean, some of the concepts that Stu's put out have changed the way that we think about how to get performance in sport or how to rehab things. Uh, Shirley Saruman's kind of in the same boat, but more of the rehab mindset. But at the same time, they opened a lot of eyes or changed a lot of viewpoints in the field. So you can't really take away from the people that are kind of the 
I guess you'd say the pioneers in their industries. And I think for both of them, I've, I've heard both of them speak, uh, both for multiple days. I think what both of them do that is so well is they are researchers who are able to give the information to the practitioner and they also work as practitioners. So it's kind of like, this is what I do when I work with my patients or clients. This is what I see in the lab. And for those of you who are in the field, you know, that's always the push pull between the researchers say, well, the practitioners do too much gym science or too much in the clinic science. And the people who are in the gym or who are in the clinic say, well, the researchers are too much in the lab. And these two people really, I think, cross the boundaries. And whether you're a researcher or a practitioner or a clinician, they kind of say, this is why we do what we do. Yeah. And I mean, I actually had an opportunity last year where I referred a patient to Stu. Um, I wish I could have been there to see how he goes through his process on things, but he was able to contact me afterwards and give updates on what the person was going through, what I should do as the trainer, what he should do and uh, what the process should look like. So it was really cool to be able to see you know, that he isn't just somebody who runs research trials and that's it, but he's actually working with people and then communicating back and forth with people. Uh, it's obviously something where he doesn't do that, uh, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, but it was cool to be able to see them actually take the time to take on somebody, meet with them, go through their entire thought process, their medical history, go through analysis with them and then see what the results were afterwards. And along the same lines, I was at a conference about two and a half years ago for physical therapists, even though I'm not a physical therapist that Dr. Sarman gave in Pittsburgh. And I was, in air quotes, volunteered to have her evaluate my back for part of the clinic. And I got an hour and a half evaluation from, from her, which clarified why my back had bothered me for a number of years. And since that time, taking her recommendations and realizing from what she said was correct, I've been able to adapt and work at a much higher level than I could for a number of years before that. So I, th I think both of them are excellent resources. Yeah. It's crazy how the good people can see things so much faster and so much easier than anyone else. I, I know the thing that really I took away from it is she pointed out the fact that my one hip did not flex very well. And mm -hmm. she, she explained why doing she was able to do some tests that I believe either she or, or Dr. McGill have worked on. And when she said that, I realized that, you know, every time I fell while running up the stairs in high school playing basketball or something, it was because I was trying to lift that leg. And it was kind of like the light bulb went on. I was like, oh, so it wasn't that I was just lazy. It's there was an anatomical pre reason for that. Yeah, there's always a reason behind it. It's just a matter of like you can work so hard and not make any progress or you could just be naturally gifted. I mean, there's always going to be something behind why you can or why you can't do what you do. So you've mentioned in either this first second part or the first part, how you got around to going from being a personal trainer to doing continuing education in your clinic to expanding t out. I want to talk a little bit. How did you come up with the idea for a podcast? I think I told in the intro to the first part of this interview, I had an idea and listening to your podcast really solidifies like, Hey, I think my idea might actually work. So how did you come up with the idea? Well, actually, I can't even take credit for it. Going back, Stu actually gave me the idea for that. He approached me and said, hey, I want to do an interview for your listeners and uh, you should interview me online. And I was like, oh, OK, I guess I should. So I got to figure out how to actually do this. Um, what's the recording software? Do I need a mic? What do I do? How do I upload a podcast? What's going on here? So it was one of those. My hand was kind of forced and because a really large name in the industry was like, yeah, I'm going to come on and do this for you. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Let's figure out how to do this now. So it took me about, I had, I think three days notice to be able to put something together and figure out what to do. 
And uh, if you remember listening to that one, the audio quality was absolutely terrible. I have no idea why the audio sucked so badly, but uh, hopefully I can have them on again in the future and be able to make a, a better audio recording. I've actually figured out how to use things like GarageBand and I have a microphone now, so that's always handy. <laughs> well, three days, it took me probably about three months to even figure out the equipment and then over a year to start moving to live. So you're way ahead of me as far as the steepness of the learning curve. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that's kind of a, not an ideal situation. And I was going into it thinking, oh, well, I've got three days. I've got a full clientele each day. Um, I've got other obligations I got to do with. So I got to figure out how to actually re record a podcast, then upload a podcast and do all this kind of stuff. And yeah, talk about a steep learning curve. It was uh, not a fun time, but yeah, it was great to be able to get Stu online. Along those same lines, what I think one of the things that most of the people that I've interviewed have said either when talking offline or on, I know that you wrote in your bio, one of your pieces of advice for somebody in the field is always look to help people in the best way possible. Uh, one of our interviews that's actually releasing the first one next week, Rick Howard said he never wanted to be the person who didn't respond to an email or a question. And I found that everybody I'm interviewing just has that give back or pay forward technique you have, and I say this in the most positive way, an atypical progression as a personal trainer because mm -hmm. most personal trainers end up working that 80, 90 hours a week, and they do that for two, three, four years, and then they go to medical school or they go into medical school savings or I'm sorry, they go into medical sales or something else because they realize that the ability to be one-on-one -on -one or small group exercise for 70, 80, 90 hours a week isn't viable. And if they reduce their number of hours, they might not be able to make enough money to survive. So somebody's listening to this, they're a student and mom and dad are saying, oh, you should go to physical therapy school or, oh, you should look at medical school. What's your idea or what's your comment or suggestions for them to think about? Maybe not tell them what to do, but you know, why should they consider personal training? Which I think, because I think the key of everything is movement. I'm biased. So I'm the, I'm the wrong choice to offer advice. And I know many times when I have students, it's like, I wish I could bring them to somebody in the field who's successful and say, Hey, talk to this guy for 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing to remember is that fitness as an industry is a multi-trillion dollar a year industry. So there's more than enough money to go around for everyone. If you're willing to work for it, or if you're smart about how you work for it, there's thousands of ways that you can scale your income per hour versus just doing a one-on-one -on -one session or um, just selling like diet teas on Instagram or something like that. So there's lots of options available for people if they're somewhat business-minded and there's lots of information about how to do that. Um, you can make a really solid, strong income in the mid to high six figures working in the fitness industry without selling your soul to the devil or um, being somebody who you know takes advantage of other people. You can be very ethical and very good at what you do and earn a really relatively good income based on that. So when people say, you know, I want to do this for a couple of years and then move on, do you actually like it? Like if you like it, keep doing it and find better ways of doing it, better ways of finding success within the industry. But if you don't like it, that's not something I can teach you. That's not something that even a different change of venue is really going to help. If you don't like it, you just don't like it. It just, it's something where you can force it as much as you want, but it's just not going to work. I mean, I use the analogy in the first episode of uh, a bad date. If you're on a bad date, why would you want to go back for a second or a third or a fourth? At a certain point in time, it's just not working out for you. So cut your losses and move on. But if you do love it, just find other ways of doing stuff or other better ways of getting there. There's thousands of options out there. And since there is so much available in terms of 
financial options, business options, different pathways that you can take, learn to do something different. It's not the most difficult thing in the world to do, but it's something where you might have to say, hey, I've got three days to figure out how to record a podcast. And that's just a whole new venue to be able to put something together. And I'm assuming when Dr. McGill gave you that option, it didn't even occur to you to say, oh, I don't have time. Can we do this in three months from now? <laughs> not easily. I mean, when he's able to say, you know, Saturday, we're doing this. It's like, okay, I guess we're doing this. And, you know, it's not something where, I mean, if you get your hand forced on something, it's a lot easier to get it done. That's why I'm a huge fan of deadlines. If I have somebody who says, yeah, write me a blog post for whenever you can. Okay. What are we talking? 2018, 2019, 2020. Cool. I'll get it done somewhere in there. If they say, you know, write me a blog post for about like a 300 word post for something in men's health and I need this by Thursday and it's Wednesday. Okay, I'll get that done tonight. Cool. But it's just having the deadline there pushes you a little bit more to actually get it done. That's why that's one of the benefits of taking formal education in something like university or whatever, because it gives you a deadline. If you don't have that final exam written on this date, you don't pass. Screw it. You're done. It's just move on. So that's always going to be a benefit to forced study and to force timelines. I like that you mentioned that there are literally thousands of ways to make money without selling your soul. I know for mm -hmm. somebody who's young in the profession or maybe somebody who's looking to make a career change, you can pull up Instagram or Facebook and some of the information literally sounds too good to be true. So I know you've got a fair amount of experience in the field. Somebody's looking for credible information on the web. What are your key things that you look for? I know you and I often are familiar with some of the professional names. Other people aren't. So what are your things that you look for that either the red flags, okay, maybe this isn't the best source of information or yeah, this is something that probably is pretty credible. Well, the two biggest things to think about when you're evaluating any kind of evidence or does it actually have proof in some way, whether that be uh, a formalized study backing it up or meta-analysis or something along that lines, or and does it have some form of biological plausibility? So if somebody is saying, all you need to do to lose weight is just eat nothing but avocados for the next six months. You know, does that sound like a good idea? And there, there might be a study if somebody's done a six month avocado study. I don't know if they have, but let's say that they have and they're able to show that, yeah, it's superior to this different type of diet or you get way better results out of it. Cool. And does it actually pass the sniff test? And when you look at it, does it smell like BS or something like that? Am I going to only eat avocados for the next six months? How much fun is that going to be? How much side effect is it going to be? But, uh, it, it's something that's just not happening. Cool. Then it's just not happening. Or does it sound like a really bad idea? Um, either way, it's just going to be something that you either have to have the evidence to show that it works or that the evidence just isn't there. And if you could mention, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, two or three places that you go to or that you refer your clients to for information. Um, typically it's going to be most of the people who I refer out are going to go to something that's got more of a consumer end point to it. Like not something that's going to be too super highly technical or whatever. Um, I'll refer people to places like examine.com if they're looking for supplement information, just because they do have a really set up easily for end users. Um, for any information on medical stuff, WebMD is usually a good search. But uh, it just depends on what they're looking for. If somebody's really good on information for, you know, uh, shoulder stuff, I'll send them to Eric Cressy because he's got a lot of great information on that. If somebody wants to learn about uh, back rehab or something like that, Stu Miguel's got his new book out, Back Mechanic, that's written for lay people. 
So there's lots of options out there, but it just depends on what they're coming into me for and what they're looking to get out of it. I like you mentioned that it depends what they're looking for. I have one client who is an engineer and a few years ago I made the mistake of mentioning the Serape effect in something that we were doing and he went on Medline and found three or four Serape effect articles and came back in the next session and wanted to talk about the Serape effect. So always know your clients and make sure you're up to date on what you know too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much information out there that's as easy as a Google search away for clients. So if I direct them and say, yeah, we're talking Serapi effect, if I say, well, here's an article I wrote on it that I want you to go through. Cool. That's an easier push. So that makes it a little bit easier to get people going. But uh, that's another reason why I started actually writing my blog is for information for my clients that I could direct them to. So if they have a question about something specific, Great. It's something that I can just send them something for. If they ask me a question I don't have an article for, cool. Now I got a new article topic I can put together. We're talking with Dean Somerset. Dean is a personal trainer, an exercise physiologist, a blogger, a podcaster, a presenter. And I think the best way to sum it up is somebody who emphasizes that movement is an important part of enjoying life. Dean, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to moving to live today. I know this is something that I have been really excited about listening to. And I think if we could summarize uh, what you've said as far as into sound bites, which you really can't, but number one is whatever you're going to do, if you're going to do in the field, enjoy what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think number two, that what you said was really good, especially in regards to when you were given the opportunity to do a podcast is if somebody gives you a deadline or gives you the opportunity, jump on it. And number three, this is just for me listening to you, and I know I'll be the one who'll be searching through your blog and and searching through your Instagram posts as as a geek is never stop learning. And I I like the fact that not only do you provide people with information with what you do, whether they're clients or other professionals, but it's very clear from talking to you and listening to your podcast that you seek out information from other people. And to me, that's really a key part of being an exercise professional. Thank you very much. It's one of the highest compliments I could get. So I want to thank you for joining us. And if you have not checked out Dean's website, if you look at his schedule of events, I think he's somebody that if you are involved in movement, definitely if you're a personal trainer, a physical therapist, an athletic trainer, I think you'll go and you'll listen to some of the things he says. I know I've read some of his blog posts. It's like, wow, that's a good way of presenting that. I think the important thing is anytime you can either question what you do or come away with, wow, I never thought of it that way. You're progressing as a professional. So Dean, I know you've got a busy schedule. I want to thank you again on behalf of Moving to Live for agreeing to talk to us. My pleasure, man. Thank you very much for having me on. Hopefully this continues to be a a regular thing for you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. 
Until next week, keep on moving.